Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. And this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. And again, today we would like to tell you thank you. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. And we wanted to let you guys know that our condolences goes out to the people in Boston as well as Texas and everywhere else because there were quite a few, um, you know, interesting activities that took place over the past week, but in particular Boston and Texas. Um, there was another incident here in Chicago in which basically a young lady claimed that her child was abducted by three individuals and come to find out that that was incorrect, that allegedly her and her boyfriend, um, the 20th young man, the baby was about 22 months or 18 months, something like that, but they allegedly beat the child to death and then dumped the body in the river. And in Chicago, we've had some crazy weather. Um, the rivers have been overflowing. We've had floods. You know, it's been declared catastrophes in several areas. So it's, it's been, you know, a little rough, but, you know, there have been tragedies. You know, people have lost their children, their parents, you know, brothers, sisters, friends, whatever, you know, to all types of violence. And, again, you know, what's interesting is that something that we've been talking about in different forums <laughs> You need a background check in order to vote, but they don't want to conduct background checks for gun violence. How does that work? How does that work? So we're trying to figure these things out. But, again, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Isn't that right, William? No, that's right, Nana, because over here we walk by sight to see what makes your whole day glow because faith is believing what you know ain't so. And uh, and they know that the um, the campaign to get the voter to vote for you, that is your long-form job application and interview. And if they don't want to be interviewed by certain people, they will gerrymander your district and make it harder for you to vote. But they know who they want voting for them, so they want to give you extra perks. Hey, you can go buy all the guns you want there, Jethro. Go grab them. Nobody's <laughs> going to check you out. Exactly. And, you know, there are a lot of, you know, circumstances and a lot of different situations that we need to take a look at, but I am still of the same mindset. Vote them out. Vote all of them out of office. And I'm pretty much sticking with that. wanted to talk to you about a program that's in Atlanta. It's called All for Food. All for Food is a nonprofit program. Um, basically, they'll be going out and distributing distributing food to the different people in the community. And basically, this is coming under the Emerson Good Samaritan Food Act. And for those of you that want to start a program, you can start this program anywhere. 
So basically how this program works is you start as a nonprofit and you work in collaboration with local restaurants and food banks. And you can take that same food and give it to people. It can be hot food, cold food. So this way no food goes to waste. So, again, that's the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Food Donation Act, Um, 42 U.S.C. 1791. Look that up. This is something that you can do in your community to help people out. So, again, everybody, we can all play a part. Everybody can participate. I would strongly advise you guys to get out there and start being part of the solution. Part of the solution is it's important that we all know that we can, you know, play a role in this as far as the betterment of society. And, you know, speaking of that, today's interview with Dr. Hutchinson should be fantastic. We're going to hit on a lot of different subjects. Uh, Social justice happens to be one of the subjects. Um, Next week's show, next Sunday, we will have GU, Grand Unified. We will have Graydon Square on the line. We will have Tombstone on the line as well as Seagax. So it promises to be a wonderful show. Um, Saturday night, you know, before that show, which is the 27th, I believe, 27th, Saturday night, we're going to do a mature show, and basically we're going to be talking about sexuality in, in its various forms. So I have to post the link, create a link for that, and then post it. So for those of you that are interested in that, please tune in. But now we are going to go into our show for today, where we're going to start out with an A selection from the class. So, you know, please tune in. Wow. Love Talk Radio. <laughs> No, I think we've had a technical difficulty. Can you guys hear me? Can. Yeah. I, I I can. Yeah, the yeah, the record went out. I don't know what happened. The, the DJ failed me. Oh yes. <laughs> Say the DJ failed you. All right, guys. Let me see what's happening here. I apologize for that. Um I'm not quite sure what's happening here. So while I fix that, we can go ahead and talk about some of these issues that are happening here, um, I hate this. Um, basically, what's going on in today, what happened in Boston? You want to talk a little bit about that, William? Oh, jeez. Yeah, I, man, that that ah, that is that's one of those ones, man. Like, um, and you know, and, and it it was tough for me because I was telling you before the show started, I didn't have um the internet cable box and I didn't have the cable box. So I'm really just hearing it by word of mouth through my dumbass coworkers who only really see shit maybe across their Facebook Twitter stream in between the football Gatorade updates. 
So I'm like getting nothing until like after um really until like after the Texas explosion happened, I start getting news on it. And you know it's um it, it it's those things. I don't want to be the doom and gloom guy. I know I say that like every two weeks, folks. I I try not to be doom and gloom guy, but I'm like this is what we got to expect from our species for a while until we really start um until we can make empathy i i don't want to sim, oversimplify the way i say this like to make empathy cool you know but like like right now it's pretty much it's uh tribalism is cool with our species that's what gets you at the cool lunch table um uh, uh you know patriarchy and uh capitalism these blow up the spot it's like these are what make you someone that will be remembered and someone that will be special or then also um for people who maybe not all the wires are connected in their brain there carnage you know you do something horrifically brutal whether you know whether you go to prison for life or or you get killed in the act or you commit suicide this is what makes you feel relevant and we we got we got to fix that it's like how do we fix that i mean and well got to start with the next generation young people always young people and uh right now i think um when we had the crew on um last sunday and the the question came up uh, something about um raising kids i think it was about um about young men and, and patriarchy as far as raising boys goes and like barely any of us on the line have any kids it's like i mean i don't know like do we need to go into teaching gigs daycare like where can we get these ideas to young people and then can you get these ideas to young people without um offending their parents like you ain't gonna make my child no liberal you know i it it, it really it, it's hard to um to stay not not just focused, but stay focused with uh, thinking that there's some light at the end of that tunnel. It's got to be something. Like maybe at the end of my lifetime, there'll be something there. Like I know, um, like when I look at the um the logo station and I look at the the old school LGBT fellas that um you know their hairlines are receded, you know their their skin is fighting gravity, but they've been fighting for that equality so much and they got Doma a hearing. You know, so they got to see a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's like they knew it was there since, who knows, the late 50s. You know, these same guys have been up on the front lines fighting, getting their heads bashed in, thrown in cells, beat down, legislated against. You get a right in California, and in 2008, they take that same right, smooth the fuck away. They've had a hard-ass fight. And I say, like, for the rest of us, for those of us who really want to see the species as a whole, you know, um, unified in general global tranquility, that's a longer fight. That's a fight that's going to see a couple of centuries. And uh, just this uh, just this lower area right here, this free market of ideas, is, that's, a, that's a good spot to start from. And then, uh, like you know, um, Kim out there in Chicago with the Beanox, like they, they do, you got the bags of food. You know, they're, they're doing something um, very specific. So, yeah, the the fight is there. I know MC Brooks with, with his uh, with his rhymes, um, he's putting his his best thoughts forward. I could do better with that with mine. Some of my rhymes can be are rather belligerent, and uh, yeah, I, I can uh, I, I can do a little better. I, I probably oh, yeah. went off on a tangent way away from the bombing. I think I, I, I went somewhere else. I, and that, now, now I'm thinking because you were talking about the the kids starving. I know you saw that one in the news where the um where the kids in the school they um they they didn't have enough money like on their weekly school thing. So it's like you take a kid, take think about what kind of piece of shit can do this. You got a kid with a, a food on the tray, 
and they don't have enough money, so you make that kid throw it away. And think about the the background the kid already comes from if they don't have enough money. They probably don't have the nice things in their home. They're probably getting made fun of by their peers not having the uh, the nice shoes. And then they're having maybe a tough time in class because, who knows, they're already hungry. Maybe they missed school breakfast that morning. And you fucking asshole will make that kid throw their sustenance in the garbage and go sit down and fucking cry. You're a piece of shit adult. I would gladly get fired from my job to to not do that, to say, no, let little Timmy eat his goddamn lunch. What kind of piece of shit makes him throw it away? It's already on the tray. And that's because they privatized um, that particular school's uh, lunch program to keep privatizing right. shit because it's all for profit. Yeah. But then who got the profit? Exactly. But in addition to that, there was uh, an incident in Georgia in which a grocery store was foreclosed on. The church was supposed to come and pick up the food, but the church didn't get the food. And there was a 41% poverty unemployment rate or underemployment rate in that particular area. And the people were standing around as they hauled the food off. And um, basically a lot of the perishables went to the dump and some of the food banks in the area, they picked up the food. and But someone dropped the ball. Someone dropped the ball big time there. All right, guys, I got my technical difficulties fixed, so let's try it one more time. Here we go. This is for the black. This is for the free. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Hey, welcome to Black Free Thinkers Radio, and my name is Kim, and today we have Dr. Sukibu Hutchinson from Black Skeptics Los Angeles talk to us about the new book, God is Americana. Welcome, Dr. Hutchinson. Good morning, Kim. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. We have a nice, radiant, sunny day here, so um should be a nice weekend. <laughs> well, that's great for you guys. We just had a bunch of items, so. <laughs> yeah, sorry to rub it in. <laughs> well, we have some fun today, so we'll take whatever little we can get. <laughs> so no vicariously, exactly. Just take it vicariously, not at all. Exactly, exactly. You know, drop the drop top for us and think about us fondly. How about that? But your new book, God is Americana, it is a wonderful book. Thank you. We appreciate it. What was your motivation behind this book? Well, it was a follow-up to Moral Combat, and it is an assessment of the political climate and the role religion has played in shaping race, white supremacy, and really looking at this delusion of post-racialism, colorblindness, and American exceptionalism that emerged with a vengeance in the era of Obama. So I wanted to, to pull back a little bit and to really give a hard-hitting, trenchant, black feminist, radical humanist assessment of the backlash and assault on social justice that we've seen over the past several years, post-Obama. And... In my mind, there has not been any real, even abiding critique and consciousness of the decline of African-American socioeconomic sustainability, um, looking at the wage gap, looking at the wealth gap, looking at the intractability of de facto residential segregation, and uh, the really devastating impact that that has had upon the trajectory of African-American wealth and employment in the so-called post-racial, colorblind, American exceptionalist era. So I wanted to do that from an African-American humanist perspective, a perspective that is really grounded in the social history and legacy of black free thought, um, looking at the activism of people like A. Philip Randolph, the landmark uh, labor organizer, a socialist publisher, an intellectual, uh, looking at the inroads that were made by people like Hubert Henry Harrison, African-American communist organizer, and Carlos Menefox voice, and you know, trying to bring that into a 21st century context again where we're really living in this paradoxical space where it's being proclaimed that there's all of this opportunity, that there's all of this access to upward mobility, where African-American wealth, again, has been totally decimated by mm-hmm. the housing decline, you know, by the Wall Street debacle, and there's not been any engagement on this at a federal public policy level coming from our African-American president and him being again, this paradigm of black uplift and black progress and black talented tense exceptionalism 
and there's been no engagement with the reality, the apartheid reality that African Americans and other people of color are confronting in urban America. Exactly. Excellent. Because no one has addressed, you know, the wealth that's been lost by people of color with the black, you know, um, bubble that burst, you know, and with the housing bubble there. And, you know, if you, if you can, please speak about the wealth gap because I've posted a lot of materials. I was explaining to people, and I posted materials so we can see how the FHA was responsible for the ghettoization of black America, but also I post some information to show them there's a wealth gap. There wasn't a wealth gap until, you know, the early, well, basically the 1930s and 1940s, and that, that came for being with the GI Bill. Yes. So two critical institutions, GI Bill, as well as the Federal Housing Administration, um, really helped to propel white middle class and white working-class people into the American dream. The GI Bill excluded African-American veterans from getting educational benefits and, via the Federal Housing Administration, from getting mortgage lending benefits. So these were all benefits that were flowing to European-American working-class and lower-middle-class folks and enabling them to, quote-unquote, um, you know, using... Um, the shot-worn themes of bootstrap uplift and, you know, Horatio Alger advancement allow them to achieve the middle-class American dream while systematically shutting out African Americans primarily and other people of color secondarily. So what you had with this nexus, and it's not just the ideal and the FHA, but it's also other institutions um, like, you know, the Veterans Administration, like Social Security, um, these institutions, you know, established white wealth and really um, exacerbated racialized wealth gaps that already existed. So the generalization that we see here in the 21st century is a legacy of these institutions. And really looking at this in terms of the whole architecture of the New Deal. I mean, the New Deal was based upon these institutions, VA, Social Security, uh, GI Bill, Federal Housing Administration. So redlining comes into existence with the FHA, where the FHA uh, basically establishes as a policy that it will not lend to, quote, unquote, urban ghetto areas. And, of course, who is disproportionately concentrated in these, quote, unquote, urban ghetto areas, lower working class, African-Americans and middle-class African-Americans. And so the issue in Dallas Americana is how do we connect this systematic racial apartheid via the institution of residential segregation, de facto segregation, but, but really um, a, co a complex mix, you know, of apartheid conditions, legalized segregation, and de facto segregation, i.e. non-legal segregation. How do we connect this to the predominance of institutions of organized religion in the United States. So the issue is, if we look at our communities, I know, Kim, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum, ad infinitum. If we look at our communities, what are the primary institutions, uh, quote-unquote, capacity-building institutions that we see? They are churches. So 
every watch is masked with these churches, storefront churches, mid-sized, in some instances, mega churches. And if we go to white working class communities and, of course, white middle to affluent communities, we do not see this proliferation of church architecture and infrastructure. And that has everything to do with these legacies of institutionalized racial apartheid based upon residential segregation. The fact that African-American small businesses and entrepreneurs cannot get loans similar to even white working class entrepreneurs and small businesses shut out systematically by contemporary practices, 21st century practices, put into place by commercial lenders that systematically discriminate against African-American business owners. And we're not even going to talk about the residential market um, and all of the lawsuits uh, that have come down on major brokers like Countrywide and Wells Fargo and Bank of America for systematically targeting African-American home buyers and Latino home buyers for uh, subprime and predatory loans. So when we look at, again, this nexus of the dominance of organized religion in our communities, look at it in terms of a sociological lens, it is not sufficient. I'm going back to one of the theses of Godless Americana. It's not sufficient as white thinkers and writers do to simply say that Peoples of color are so steep in religiosity because we're not educated, because we are backward, because we are unenlightened, because we do not subscribe to evolutionary principles, because we do not bow down to um, the, the paramount importance of Darwin. It is a racist and white supremacist and so that's what Dallas Americana does, is it grounds us as black freethinkers, humanists, and atheists in a sociological, in a social justice and economic justice-based critique of the dominance of organized religion and the absolute need to address this in terms of looking at the overarching structure of power, oppression, control, and capitalist domination in our communities. Excellent. Very good. And that's one of the reasons why, because I've noticed, you know, some involvement on my behalf, just paying attention and noticing things and, you know, introspecting. And this is why I say to other people of color in this community that we have to be very careful with some of the statements that we make because I now recognize it as being self-hatred, if you will, or patriarchal type of language because, you know, again, the assumption is made that, you know, the people that are believers of color, that they are less than intelligent or that they have a mental illness because they believe. And, again, that, you know, beating up on them, I think, that it's time for us to elevate ourselves and elevate our thoughts. I don't believe personally that it's our job to be up on them. I believe it's our job to help them because we're part of the community and it's about us working together. And I believe that this is the time where we can show our faces and make ourselves known and actually bring a positive change to our community. Exactly. 
And what I would say, um, attending to what you just said in terms of we as free thinkers being fully integrated into communities of color that are struggling with these issues of racial apartheid is, I would direct the readers to check out an extremely important survey uh, done by some Brown University researchers under the aegis of the U.S. 2010 survey. And this survey concluded that African-American and Latino middle class, two upper middle class home owners, are more likely to be concentrated in, quote-unquote, lower-income, socioeconomically depressed communities that are transit-dependent, that do not have access to living wage jobs, that are under-seized by high rates of foreclosure, high rates of mass incarceration, and we can just go on down the line. And I certainly know, um, as someone who grew up in South L.A. and bought a house in South L.A., that there is a cross-section of class positionalities within African-American and Latino South L.A. and East L.A. communities. And there's a cross-section because of these institutionalized policies. So we cannot, again go into a conversation about the potential and the cultural relevance of humanism without having some critical consciousness about okay. the ways in which we are fundamentally dispossessed of any purchase on power and socioeconomic wealth. It absolutely informs, again, the dominance of structures of organized religion, of investment into organized religion, of the use of organized religion as a source of agency, particularly, and unfortunately from our position, by African-American women. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, when you try to bring that to the forefront, you know, that's where some of the resistance comes in, but we have to recognize it. And, again, you know, going back to, you know, you're talking about women. Um, here, you know, and let's talk about the free thought community. And I have a question here. Will the intersection of feminism and social justice ever be a major player in this community? Well, I certainly hope that it will come to the forefront more than it has now. Um, we have to look at the realities of black women in America when it comes to the lens of feminism and the fact that we have had a very conflicted relationship to mainstream feminism, the second wave, and in some instances, third wave feminism. Um, historically, and I go into this in great detail in the book, looking at um, women of color and faith traditions and women of color and free thought. Historically, African-American women have been at the forefront of feminist movement and feminist struggle, particularly around linking racial terrorism and sexual terrorism and economic disenfranchisement. That was a linchpin of the life's work and organizing and intellectualism of Ida B. Wells, who is a majorly unsung African-American feminist activist who was battling you know, with white women in the late 19th and early 20th century to have her voice heard as an activist around issues of being molested.
refrain of, you know, being segregated in a Jim Crow car and then being sexually terrorized as an African-American woman, being sexually terrorized in white households, you know, and linking that to the whole regime of lynching that existed not just in the deep south but also in the Midwest as well. So activists like Isaac Wells were really forerunners in articulating the degree to which this legacy of the commodification and objectification of black women's bodies under slavery deeply informed the ways in which African-American women were disenfranchised when it came to wealth dynamics, when it came to employment, when it came to being in the public sector and having to not just assume the double burden, which means working on the home front and working in a job, but also the triple burden of, you know, working, you know, as domestic for privileged white women, in some instances, you know, quote-unquote not so privileged, uh, you know, lower middle-class white women, but always being viewed as the hypersexual, immoral Jezebel. And getting it from, you know, multiple positions, you know, not just getting it from, you know, white supremacist America, but also from our own community, you know, in terms of, you know, being viewed, you know, not just as Jezebel, but, you know, as breeders, um, as matriarchs, um, as undermining the uplift and empowerment of African-American men, um, as not having any purchase on our self-determination when it came to issues like institutionalized sexual assault within the African-American community and the license, you know, that black men were given, you know, to and are given, you know, to sexually assault and sexually harass and, and abuse African-American women. We have the highest rate of intimate partner violence and sexual assault in the United States. So these are critical issues for us as African-American feminists that um, are not only erased when it comes to the broader trajectory of the mainstream civil rights movement, but have no real traction when it comes to the mainstream, if we can even call it, feminist movement now, the women's mm-hmm. movement. Um, so if we look at this from a secular context, our issues are not being heard in the richness of their intersectionality, that there is no real engagement with the way in which the black church, for all of its deficits, for all of its heterosexist and sexist and patriarchy, misogyny, its you know, bedrock investment and inscription of those regimes of oppression, the black church, for better or for worse, has been a source of lifeblood for black women. And so as radical feminist free thinkers of African descent, we're going to have to frontally engage with that paradox. And the way in which you frontally engage with that paradox, and you and I have spoken about this many times, is we have to develop our own institutions that reflect a radical humanist ethos that is steeped within social and gender justice. We have to do that within the context of our schools, which are under siege, not just by racism and white supremacy, but now by corporatization and privatization. 
We have to engage with this in terms of building community centers, you know, to counteract the dominance of religious-based programming for youth in our communities. We have to develop after-school programs and on down the line. So for us, you know, the project is not just, you know, getting back to my earlier comment, we all are just, you know, backwards and, you know, believe in miracles and prayed up and churched up. That's not going to roll for us. That has absolutely no purchase on reality for us. You know, that kind of diatribe against black psyches and and black social capital. Because, again, the black church is a form of social capital. And we're at the forefront of critiquing it, of deconstructing it, but we must be in a position to provide viable, sustainable social and economic justice alternatives. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I've been covering this for the past couple of years, and especially really hard this past year, in which I have stated emphatically that we must offer some type of alternative. We must be able to go into these communities and go in and offer goods and services and bring about either bring about the change that we're talking about. Because this is the only way it's going to happen at this point. And this is in it's just it's unbelievable. But I'm glad that you brought up about Ida B. Wells and, you know, the women at the forefront, the black women that were at the forefront of the women's of the um feminist movement because I've spoken to the people about Florence Kennedy and a little bit about Kimberly Crenshaw. And you know, what I don't understand is well, I do understand, but how we were factored out of that particular equation, even with the um, gay rights movement, you know, it started out as Stonewall with people of color fighting the police, fighting for their rights, and, and they were factored out. And, again, in their efforts to sanitize and mainstream these issues, they factored us right out of the equation. And what I'm starting to see now are, you know, people of color coming back into these particular realms, if you will, now with the feminist movement, you know, women of color. I'm starting to see more religious women of color proclaiming to be feminist. And, you know, I've had different discussions with different people in our community, and they feel that it's oxymoron for, you know, a Christian woman to call herself, you know, a feminist. But what I say to them is we were involved in the feminist movement, and what happened was in many cases, they had to choose between the feminist movement and the black liberation movement. So, you know, quite a few of them sided with the black liberation movement, and at that time, many of them were silenced or they silenced themselves regarding the feminist movement. But now that I see them talking about it again, I mean, we have to take every step forward that we can. The fact that they are now finding the courage to even speak about feminism, that speaks volumes. Yeah, and I think that... Um there's a lot of discussion that we need to have, again, about the social history of feminism and, you know, getting back to your critique about silencing. Really recognizing that as African-American women, we were caught in the crossfire of, and we're looking back into the 1960s, you know, with the emergence of the National Organization for Women, that we were caught in the crossfire of an emergent black nationalist, black power movement, and an emergent 
white-dominated feminist movement. And by white-dominated, I mean that the face of feminism was white women, not African-American, Latina, Native American, Asian American women. And so being caught in that crossfire meant that we had to establish our allegiances based upon racist, white supremacist supremacist rhetoric coming from white women saying that, well, your issues as oppressed, working-class women living in transit-dependent, segregated communities where you have to work from this end, where you have to take a bus from your community in the south side of Chicago all the way over to an affluent white middle-class community to work as a domestic in the kitchen of Miss Ann, who is reading the feminine mystique and gaining some enlightenment from being, quote-unquote, oppressed as an affluent white woman who is disengaged from the reality of needing to work, of you know having to establish some degree of self-determination, um, separate and apart from her family and her husband, and there being a fundamental disconnect between those two realities. So African-American women have allied with African-American men because of the realities of racial apartheid and institutionalized white supremacy. Insofar as we have always, ever since we were brought here, had to work. We were inscribed as a public body, first and foremost. We never, ever had the luxury and the privilege to be on anybody's pedestal to be Miss Ann on the plantation or in the suburban home tending a household and a family. We didn't have that luxury. So right there and then, there was this fundamental schism that is informing the relationships between African-American and white women in the women's movement. And that certainly was brought to the fore with the lack of support that early activists like Shirley Chisholm, for example, didn't get okay. from the women's movement, from people like Gloria Steinem and, and Betty Friedan, I believe, who did not support her candidacy for the presidency early on, believing that she wouldn't be a viable candidate. Similarly, African-American male leaders did not support Shirley Chisholm because mm-hmm. of this animus against feminism. You know, Shirley Chisholm was a very ardent, very vocal feminist, and because of this belief that we as black men have to be the standard bearers for power and authority and political viability in our communities. And these kinds of dynamics still exist, particularly if we look at the Christian leadership within our communities and the fact that the voices in those Leadership circles continue to be African-American men. You know, the, the role of the charismatic, religious African-American male still prevails within black America. And so these are dynamics that we have to be acutely aware of. And when we're talking about 
Generation Y and the so-called hip-hop generation. There's a, another dynamic that mm-hmm. is more insidious because this is a generation that is so hooked into virtual worlds and virtual reality in a 24-7 media regime where black women, if we are represented as all, at all, we are represented as the sexualized other whole ratchet blood bitch going down the line with the demeaning, degrading, and dehumanizing language. And so this is a perniciously, quote-unquote, post-feminist, and I push back against that term, a post-feminist context where young people don't even have any real concept of what agency for women looks like beyond, well, I can shake my ass, you know, on on a video and be, quote-unquote, sexually liberated. You know, I can do, like, a soft porn um, video and and distribute it and consider myself sexually liberated. So this is where we are. This this is the reality of where we are, not just as people, but as a nation. And I see this day in and day out with my students. I, um, as you know, run a women's leadership project program in South LA High School. And the predominant theme amongst young women when we talk about empowerment around just being critically conscious about the abuse and the violence and terrorism, really, that they experience on a day-to-day basis is we have to acknowledge that that is abuse violence, and terrorism, and not a naturalized experience for women of color. Exactly. When you have, you know, young women, you know, pushing back against the notion that they are victimized, you know, by this kind of unrelenting assault upon their sense of self, personhood, and subjectivity. So we have a lot of work to do. A lot right. of work to do as, you know, black, feminist, humanist, atheist, free-thinking activist that really supersedes this very reductive, in my mind, paternalistic Mickey Mouse equation of black equals backward, you know, undereducated, hyper-religious, hysterically Christian. That's offensive. Yeah, very much so, very much so. And I agree with you 100%. And that's the reason why I think it's important for us to take it back and teach them about women like Sarah Bartman (laughs) and what she had to deal with and how she was paraded, you know, in the circus like she was this, you know, anomaly, if you will. And how she was mistreated and when they released her, how she was prostituted, if you will, and how it took Africa, you know, when did, when did um, France send her, her remains back? They didn't send her remains back until the 1900s. I don't remember exactly when, but, you know, instances like that, and it's still happening today, and what I find is hurting is, a lot of the sexualization of black women, you know, it is coming from, you know, men in our own community. And I just find that a great injustice. Yeah, and contemporary resonances when it comes to the legacy of Sarah Parkman are 
when you're talking, I was just thinking about this example of an upstate New York high school that actually reenacted the beating of Rihanna by Chris Brown in a public context, in a public gym at a pep rally. And not only did they reenact this beating, but they also stepped it up a notch performatively and put on blackface. And so this was something that was of the greatest hilarity to this audience. You know, the fact that not only were they reenacting this, this violent, savage beating, but mm-hmm. they were in total Negro slash coon regalia. And so, again, these are the kinds of realities that we're in, you know, as women of color. Um, we're not far removed from the tragedy of Sarah Bartman. And Sarah Bartman was used as a vehicle to inscribe the enlightenment of Western scientific inquiry. She was shuttled around, not just, you know, in, in Paris, but throughout Europe, you know, displaying her as this human, quote-unquote, curiosity, as the absolute cornerstone of the degradation of the human form, you know, the missing link, the lower tier of the evolutionary chain. And so this is something that we have to keep in mind when it comes to this atheist cathexis, white atheist cathexis, upon science as infallible, as objective, as transparent, as trans-historical. This is a deep part of the way in which black women, women of African descent, have been inscribed as hypersexual, amoral readers. Exactly. And we see either that propaganda in, I know we've talked about this many times, the billboard campaign that was launched by the far right a few years ago and was okay. used to justify this constellation barrage, really, of anti-abortion and anti-contraception legislation you know, that we've seen, you know, throughout the nation, state legislatures, you know, voting to proclaim and declare an embryo, a person, you know, there's a deep connection, you know, between that history of Sarah Bartman and the exhibition of black bodies in the early 20th century and the exhibition and the criminalization and demonization of black bodies here in the 21st century. And it has everything to do not just with this Christian ethos of degrading the racialized other, but also with a secular Western Enlightenment-based scientific tradition of inscribing otherness on the bodies of peoples of African descent, first and foremost, as, you know, the utmost space of otherness and objection and opposition to white Western norms of humanity, universality, and civilization. Exactly, exactly, and we could go on with that for a while because that's definitely a topic that needs to be addressed, and that's why, guys, I tell you, you need to pick up this book because it addresses a lot of these issues. One issue that I wanted to talk about, you know, briefly, if we can, is um, 
the systemic dismantling of the public school system and the heralding of the charter schools that's happening in this country now. That's why perfect. Um, <laughs> this is this is something that is extremely vexing to me as an educator because we're seeing it in terms of the creaming of African Americans, middle class students and families from quote unquote inner city schools. And I, that's another term that I push back against because inner city means poor and African American. It has nothing to do with the geographically uh, articulated space. So we have a number of things that are operating under this regime of not just charterization, but high stakes testing mandated by the Obama administration under its race to the top initiatives and policy. What has been established about charterization, and there are a number of really excellent uh, policy reports on this, uh, notably put out by the Economic Policy Institute. Highly recommend listeners go check out their work. Linda Darling-Hammond, a major African-American education activist and progressive scholar from Stanford, is uh, among the theoreticians in that institute, but have looked at charters very critically and have deemed charters to be wanting in terms of their caliber, in terms of their output, in terms of their evaluative merit for our students. They are no better and in many instances worse than, quote-unquote, underseas inner-city schools. So we have that aspect with regard to breaking down the, the riddle level of quality of charters. Another aspect is we have corporate raiders that are descending upon our community. The Walmart Foundation, the Gold Foundation, the Case Foundation, and scores of others, anchored by hedge fund profiteering. So you have basically these conglomerates that are descending upon public schools and capitalizing off of the desperation of working-class parents of color, setting up these schools basically to fail, having teachers that are not protected by unionization, have no defined benefit plans, can be fired at will, having special needs and English language learner students marginalized from the system, because the whole dynamic of charter schools is to basically take the best, quote-unquote, from the community, not have any accountability for ELL and special needs students. Mm -hmm. And to try and capitalize off of that in terms of these astronomical test scores. And certainly we've seen in public school systems like Atlanta and D.C., which has not been fully investigated because of Michelle Reeves' dominance, or former dominance there, where you have these testing scandals breaking out because, you know, there is this maniacal rush for accountability via testing. And that, first and foremost, fails our students, African-American students the most. So there's a perfect storm of the high-stakes testing regime mandated by George W. Bush with no child left behind and now 
filtering into the Obama uh, administration. And this hysterical, maniacal, obsessive focus on charter as the antidote to K-12 education. Exactly. And what I do is I caution people to go out and actually do some research on that because there are a lot of, you know, immigrants, if you will, that are purchasing these charter schools. And what happens is it takes them to the front of the INS line for uh, citizenship. And, you know, people need to understand and read the correlation, understand that charter schools are for profit and, you know, how it's setting it up, like you said, for the perfect storm, which takes us to the school prison pipeline. Right. And a lot of they're not seeing this. And we're trying to caution them, but the propaganda that's on the news is telling them that the system as they know it has failed them, and this is the new alternative. Again, going back to that Christ-like type of metaphor there, and, and that's what's happening, but with their children, you know, there are more children being sent directly from school to prison. And what a lot of people of color aren't seeming to realize is that now it's not just the boys, you know, the, the women, the girls are going to jail and prison at alarming numbers right now. So that's a big thing in Dallas Americana and looking at this architecture of mass incarceration and the way that it impacts the lives of youth in particular. One major segment in the book examines suspension and expulsion policy and the degree to which African American students are just just off chain in terms of the way in which we have been criminalized by suspension and expulsion policies. African American girls, I'm glad to bring this up, are the most suspended population next to African-American boys. And to put this in perspective, white male students, Latino male students, Native American male students are not as suspended as black girls. So the least suspended demographic in American public schools is Asian-American girls and then white girls and then mm -hmm. Latinas. African-American girls eclipse males of other ethnicities in being suspended. And we are also looking at the adult prison population. We are also overrepresented, certainly in terms of California, insofar as we're 30% of the California prison population, whereas black women are maybe about 7% of the overall California population. And if we go state by state and look at the figures, look at the stats, there is a direct correlation between the over-suspension and expulsion of African-American youth in not just high schools, but in middle schools, and incarceration rates. So this school-to-prison pipeline dynamic begins with the perception that Educators, administrators, frontline personnel, i.e. staff, security staff in schools, have about black students. And we're not just talking about, unfortunately, non-black adults. We're talking mm -hmm. about African-American adults. And I did a, a major article on this um, about a year ago, looking at LAUSD's Apartheid Hall of Shame and the fact that if we go 
going to predominantly African-American schools, predominantly African-American teachers and administrators are unfortunately presiding over these discriminatory suspension policies where African-American students are perceived as being more threatening, as of being more defiant, um, as not, quote-unquote, conforming to the normative conduct that they presumably should have in a classroom. And this gets back to one of the major themes of the book, cultural relevance. Because mm-hmm. if an educator comes into the classroom with the perception of African-American students from all class backgrounds as being achieving, as being highly intellectual, as being articulate, as having social capital, then you will not see these devastating, staggeringly, staggeringly high suspension rates. Exactly. And so it goes back to changing the ethos around the way in which youth of color are perceived in our communities and changing the perception of the role that African-American social history and community and social capital have played in the educational process. So we're really looking at a number of different dimensions you know, when we talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, and it's been absolutely pernicious for our students on multiple levels. And certainly if we look at, for example, college-going rates, um, push-out slash dropout rates, you know, the staggeringly high, you know, dropout rates amongst our students, you know, the highest in California, African-American students represent the highest rate of student dropout. Um, we're under siege. We are absolutely under siege. And to direct your listeners again, you know, to some very critical public policy research on this, the Education Trust West just released a report uh, that looked at African-American students within specifically the Los Angeles Unified School District, but statewide as well, and determined that the track that we're on now, where you have these disproportionate rates of suspension, expulsion, and push-out, given this trajectory, there will be only one in 20 African-American students that will be college-ready that will go on to four-year colleges and universities in California by, I believe, it was the year, like, 2020 or something like that. Um, and what kind of comments is that on the so-called post-racial colorblind American exceptionalist nation? Mm. Right. Exactly. And, you know, again, all of these issues, you know, we definitely need to talk about them even more and bring it more and more to the forefront and hold these, quote-unquote, black leaders accountable, the ones that have totally disregarded these issues and that have been pretty much paid off. And when you start bringing that information to the forefront, you know, and again, it goes back to um, the way that we've been you know, institutionalized and, you know, our thought processes. We need to bring this information out and we need to, again, as you stated, you know, change the paradigm, take control of the narrative and, you know, kind of set things straight and offer people an alternative. But 
it's just so much happening in our community, so much happening, not enough time to really get it all in and talk about it. But one thing that I do want to talk about is I want to congratulate you on your scholarship program, the success of your scholarship program. Do you mind telling us a little bit about it? Absolutely. Um, and I want to say that I really appreciate your support, your reinforcement, and engagement with the program. Uh, Black Skeptic LA spearheaded a four-year college-going and two-year college-going scholarship fund for South LA students, and we're focusing on four populations, lesbian, gay, bisexual, <clears throat> transgender, questioning youth, foster care youth, homeless youth, and undocumented youth. And the reason why we focus on those four populations is because these are historically underrepresented youth populations within not just the four-year college-going sphere, but also the two-year college-going sphere. Major report uh, by the Institute for Success in Education that looked at foster care retention rates, foster care youth retention rates in two-year colleges. It is abysmal. If you are a foster care young person, particularly of African-American or Latino descent, you have a very marginal chance of getting your AA from a two-year institution, much less transferring and graduating from a four-year college. So we want to focus on foster care youth because African-American youth in L.A. County are, again, overrepresented amongst the foster care population. And as foster care youth age out of the system, they are more likely to become homeless because probably they lack the support mechanism. They lack uh, the job resources, the familial resources that they need to move into college and careers and stable housing. So we identified foster care homeless um, and also undocumented youth for these reasons of socioeconomic disenfranchisement. LGBTQ youth of color are also underrepresented for a range of reasons that are informed by high rates of homelessness and high rates of foster care placement. So we thought it was important to identify these populations and to reserve four scholarships for $1,000 for these young people and specifically focus on South L.A. because African Americans predominate now in South L.A. Um, L.A. USD is really shrunk in terms of African American dominant schools. We only have maybe three or four high schools that are predominantly African American now within the LAUSD. And so we're working in partnership with teachers and administrators and counselors in these schools, you know, to try and recruit students and to emphasize humanism in terms of their essays and their thinking about what they might like to do with these scholarships. Excellent, excellent. And you know, again, congratulations, because when I first heard that you were putting together this scholarship program, I just thought it was a wonderful idea. Anything dealing with education, I definitely get behind that, because a lot of these young people, you know, that's where they lose their hope when they graduate, if they graduate from high school. After that, it becomes a now what? 
type of scenario. And many of them have not been taught life skills. Many of them have not been given the proper guidance and motivation to move forward from that point. From that point. And in some cases, you know, the abuse that some of them had to deal with and continue to deal with on a continuous basis, it's just it's just unreal so to be able to give these people some motivation and encourage them to pursue, you know, their dreams. That's a wonderful thing. So, you know, again, you know, I thank you and congratulate you for putting that together and for thinking about a segment of society that, you know, to a certain degree is thrown away. Thanks so much for the acknowledgement, Kim, and also wanted to emphasize this is the first in the family humanist scholarship. So we're not only, in terms of the application, you know, looking at the principles of humanism and the cultural relevance of humanism in terms of legacies of activism and what youth are doing in their present lives, but we also want to emphasize that this is for first-generation college-going youth, i.e., college-going youth that will be the first in their immediate families to go on to college. And that is a huge hurdle, as we know, for many young people of color, you know, to be the first in the family, to not have, as we've spoken of, those resources, not just in terms of material resources, but the intellectual, emotional, social, and psychic resources to believe that they can go on to college. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I have heard from young people in schools where there is no college preparation or college-going culture that, well, when I graduate, I'm just going to go down the street to, you know, El Camino or Southwest in a local, you know, two-year school and, you know, take a few classes and then get my degree without really thinking about what about a four-year? I mean, he's got a 3.5 GPA. What about going on to a UC? What about a Cal State? What about going out of state? So this kind of reinforcement is not being provided to the majority of students in our school systems that come from working class, first-generation backgrounds. Exactly. Exactly. And this is an ongoing project, everyone. So can you tell them how they can donate to your project, the scholarship program? So we um, are in the process of building a website which will be blackskepticsla.org, and that is, like I said, in process. But if anyone is interested in donating, you can contact me you know, via our email, which is blackskepticsatgmail.com, and we also have a PayPal address with the same handle. So that's blackskeptics, S-K-E-P-T-I-C-S, at gmail.com. As you went, that's their email address. It's also their PayPal address as well. So if you all wanted to make some donations via PayPal, just log into your account and send money via PayPal at that email address there. And, again, that's blackskeptics at gmail.com. And, Dr. Hutchinson, you're doing a fantastic job. I wanted to thank you, and, you know, we appreciate you, and we look forward to saying more. Coming from, you know, yourself as well as the Black Skeptics Group, you're definitely a beacon, and, you know, we look up to you, and we appreciate it. And I wanted to make one more.
more comment about your book. Big Jane Spot will never look the same to me ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the intent. A deconstruction of the mythos of the white Dick and Jane Primer. So beautifully used by Toni Morrison in The Blue Side. And that's another reference for the listeners. That's one of my favorite novels. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Kim, and thanks so much for your leadership and vision. Thank you. Thank you. And again, we thank you for calling the show. We thank you for being a part of the show. Um, Guys, this is pre-recorded. Those of you out in the Los Angeles area, Today, on Sunday, um, Dr. Hutchinson will be at the book fair. You can give them the information about that. Yes, I'll be at the L.A. Times Book Festival, which is on USC's campus in Southern California. And I will be at the Atheist United booth from 10 to 12 and Revolution Books' booth from 12 to 1 o'clock. That's Sunday, April 21st. Fantastic. And for those of you who are um, in different areas of the country, Dr. Hutchinson, she travels quite a bit. So if you go to thinkingbookhutchinson.com, you should be able to see her itinerary and see where she's going. And, again, those of you in Atlanta, she'll be there at the end of August for a program there, and that information is forthcoming as well. So on that note, Dr. Hutchinson, thank you so much for spending time with us. We truly appreciate you and everything that you've done for the, you know, the community, not just the free thought community, but the community at large. And, you know, again, thank you. Thanks so much, Kim. I really appreciate it. All right, everybody. You know, that was a wonderful, wonderful interview. And, you know, we appreciate Dr. Hutchinson and everything that she has contributed to the community, and we thank her for taking time out to spend with us today. Um, and thank you guys for bearing with us with our technical difficulties earlier. I appreciate it. And you will be able to listen to this in its entirety um, in the archives as well. I may release the private interview as well. So that way you all, if you want to just hear it directly, you can hit that as well. And, you know, it's been absolutely wonderful. But a lot of the subjects that, you know, she spoke about today, we definitely, we definitely need to continue to address these issues, um, continue to post information about these issues. Um, William, can you tell everybody the telephone again? Hey, you want to call into this one, all right? You want to call in with 310-982 and 4273 to get through. And I understand a lot of you got your smartphones on you, you're feeling fancy, but maybe you're old school like me and you got the house phone. That's when you got to remember to turn down the computer speaker first, all right? Don't be the feedback guy. We've been doing this ever since you called in to get those those Madonna concert tickets on the radio. Don't be the <laughs> feedback guy, all right? Live la bonita. Oh, well, too funny. I think we have Raina on the line. Is that you, Raina? Okay. Yeah, I don't think she's really. Yeah, it, it is. Yet. It's me. No, no, no. I thought Raina was on the line, but she has to press one. I'm not sure if she's ready to speak back. But, yeah, guys, so, you know, I posted quite a few of the links um, on my wall, definitely um, in the chat room here. And, you know, she spoke a lot of, about a lot of different issues that we definitely need to address 
um, you know, again, a lot of chatter in the chat room, and she addressed patriarchy, she addressed privilege, but most importantly, she spoke about our community and how we need to support our community, go back into the community, and actually, you know, start contributing. It doesn't matter about your religious ideology. You know, here's Rain on the line with us now. It doesn't matter what your particular religious ideology, because in essence or inevitably, we're going to have to work together anyway. And we have to look beyond these particular ideologies and start looking at the greater good for the community. So I just think it's important. Yeah, and Mario's on the line with us, too. I see Mario here and Deborah. Hey, guys. on the line with us as well. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, guys, you know, definitely, you know, that was an excellent interview. I'm sure you all learned quite a bit. And, you know, it's more information to come. We're definitely going to have her again, you know, on the show again in the not-so-distant future so that we can talk a little bit more about um, patriarchy, privilege, and, you know, a lot of different things that are happening out here. She has so much to share with us, and so we want to make sure we give her a platform to um, be able to share that information. But she's very she does. busy. Please get her and, books. Yes, Godless Americana, guys. Um, definitely yeah. the first week of May it will be officially released, and I believe the Kindle version will be released at the same time or shortly thereafter. But it is a phenomenal yeah. book. Um, you know, I tell you guys, it's a good read, and you won't be disappointed. Trust me. You will not she be disappointed. She goes hard. No. <laughs> she goes really hard. <laughs> it's, it's like it is not for it is not for the faint. You know, if you're one of those people who can't who can't take you know people putting things bluntly. It's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be a little little bit of a challenge for you, but I thought it was awesome. I love her writing, and she gets right to the point. Exactly, really no beating around the bush. It's direct and to the point. No, nope. it's really and direct. Exactly, like I said, Big Jane and Spot will never look the same for me. And you know, guys, you'll really enjoy it. But the title of the book is Godless Americana: Race and Religious Rebels, and I'll just, you know, tell you, you know, a few of the chapter titles. One is um, White Picket Fences and White Innocence. Another one is Prayer Warriors and Free Thinkers. Um, another one, God's Body, Science's Brain. So, <laughs> prayer Warriors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Prayer I love Warriors that term. Free Thinkers. <laughs> yeah. Everybody loves his library and samurais and shit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, guys, you know, yeah. definitely pick it up. You'll enjoy it. You will learn a lot. You'll walk away from it in life. You definitely will do so. And, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, again, we've had some people misunderstanding or basically trying to misconstrue, you know, what she was saying. And, it's, you know, some people were one person in the chat room. And, you know, you just need to really listen to the interview. She was not confirming your your misogynistic and homophobic viewpoint. That's not what she was doing. And so, um, yeah, definitely, you know, check it out, reread, you know, go read Moral Combat. Start with that, then read Godless Americana, and it will make perfect sense. But even if you haven't read Moral Combat, you know, Godless Americana 
is actually, you know, it's a fantastic book, but you know, like uh, Rain of They stand alone. They stand alone, but they're um but yeah, they, they definitely complement each other. For sure. Exactly. Exactly. But, but 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 I but I, I will say I will say this: if you don't read Moral Combat, definitely read Godless Americana. But read both. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I'm gonna post the link for the Blue Eye for um, the Google yes. Books for it. So if you all want to read that or what have you, you can go out and take a look at that a little bit later. Purchase that one too. That's a really good book. That I read that at twelve and it changed my life. So there you go. So. <laughs> but yeah, but I want but you yeah. guys to definitely look up the issues. I posted a few links about um the charter schools and how, you know, it's the new you know, visa rush. This is how people are being rushed to the front of the INS line to become, you know, US citizens. It's important that you guys understand and know, you know, what's happening and they are dismantling the public school system and they're doing it for a reason. And, you know, we've been up in arms about how, you know, a lot of our children are going directly from school to prison, and we've posted information about that as well. And, guys, it's just it's extremely important for you all to stay on top of these particular issues and know what's happening and understand, you know, the reasoning behind a lot of the decisions that they're making. It's not for our benefit, not at all. And. Mm-hmm is that, you know, they can capitalize and make money off of it. But in order for you to be able to understand and see what's happening, you have to do the research, you have to do the reading, um, you know, listen to the show because we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about that on future shows as well. So, you know, it will be to your benefit to, you know, do some research on your own because, again, as skeptics and free thinkers and, you know, non-believers, atheists, whatever you may want to call yourself, we want you to verify we want you to verify. We want you to research. Don't take our word for it. Go out and find out for yourself. I encourage you to do that. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And if I made a mistake somewhere along the way, point it out. I have no problems with that at all. I believe in people asking questions, and I also believe in saying, you know, when I've made a mistake or if I was wrong or if I evolved, you know, my thinking. But, again, you know, everyone, you know, it's been absolutely fantastic. And, you know, this this man but this week has been eventful. I'm gonna move away a little bit, but you but it kinda ties in with what's been happening this week with uh, the killings and, you know, the accident um over in Texas there. And, you know, there were other issues, you know, that happened but, you know, while we weren't paying attention to that, you know, CISPA passed. And President Obama is threatening to veto that, and the gun bill, it failed. So, guys, you know, while we're concerned with all of these other things, do not let other issues fall by the wayside. We have to remain diligent in what's happening and being aware of what's happening around us. But, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of speculation about what happened in Boston. All I would say is give it some time, and all the facts and information will come out, but... Some also, the- mainly it wasn't staged. Please get exactly. that out of your mind. Please. In the oh. age of cell phones and Twitter and Facebook, the fact that people can think that a that an event that was, you know, that widely, you know, um, documented 
and and viewed by so many people could be staged is just insane to me. But whatever. So exactly, you know that out there. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. You know. know. Yeah, Mario. What was that, William? I just, I just, I just found that that whole thing. It's like it's. As soon as I saw the headline, I saw the conspiracy theories already starting to run. And I just, I felt that was almost kind of disgusted that, you know, you need for everything to be controlled by this buggy man so much that you take a opportunity, you take the opportunity of a tragedy to turn into, see, I was trying to tell y'all this happened and why they doing this and why they doing that and everything. Like one person was like, see, they turned off the cell phone service. See, they don't want no information getting out. I'm like, you can still take the picture upload it, and send it later. You know what I'm saying? Turning off the cell phone service makes a great idea if the bombs are being set off by a cell phone. Think about it before you post it. Right. Well, that's right. Really. I mean, it's, I mean, people people just don't think. They really don't. I mean, it's, it's really, I mean, it's really sad. It's really sad that, that paranoia and um, misinformation, you know, are so prevalent. You know, exactly, exactly. And, you know, again, we have to make sure we're careful so that we don't fall into, you know, another type of thinking, if you will, basically, you know, what I've seen with some of the conspiracy theories or theorists out there is that to me it's like another type of cult following, if you will, you know, because there's Mm -hmm. this big bad guy or a group of bad guys or however that works. But, you know, they're invisible. No one knows who they are but special folks. You know, the elect, the elite that has this special knowledge that the rest of us, we don't see it and we don't know anything about it, but they do. And, again, there are entities out here that are capitalizing on that. Um, You know, go ahead and put it. Alex Jones is making money off of you guys. David Icke. Yes. Um, about know. about about a half a dozen or more, you know, um, Afrocentrists I can think of off the top of my head. So. Right. Exactly. They're making money, and so right, right. And you know, again, I I, I know I have friends, friends, real friends that believe in this type of thing, and they were going out purchasing all of this gold. And for those of you that haven't been paying attention, the price of gold is coming down. Yeah. So if you got gold and you were sitting on it to sell it, well, you may want to do some research and find out why the market the price is coming down. Anyway, mm-hmm. something for you all to think about. They were buying the gold. They went out and they were buying pallets of food and stockpiling water and just a lot of generators, all of that in their homes, all because they were told by someone that basically we're coming to the end of the world and it's going to be martial law and policy commentators and all of that. Right. Does. And what is so interesting about that is, guys, it's in Godless Americana where she's talking about it because, you know, she's talking about how this, how these apocalyptic fantasies that get thrown out here by these you know, especially white evangelical churches, has a lot to do with this perception that society is going downhill mainly because of black and brown depravity. 
you know, contaminating society and, um, you know, the handouts that we're supposedly getting, you know, um, is bringing society down. And so white Jesus is supposed to come and rescue all of his true believers from from us and all right. of this. And, and and Obama, who is clearly the Antichrist, I mean, oh, clearly. Oh, cool. oh so. yes, and I've heard that as well. And that's the reason why we implore you guys to pick up, you know, um, her books, pick them both up, because, again, you know, she talks about these issues in detail. In detail, she explains, you know, what's happening and especially how it pertains to our communities of color. And it's important for us to kind of understand and put some things in perspective because, again, everybody has a unique experience. And in communities of color, it's a little bit different than communities of non-color, you know, some things. You know, we have a lot more things in common. But, you know, again, just pick up the book and check it out. You know, we finally have um, writers of color in our community, and I just think it's important that we support them. You know, um, there was another book that came out not too Especially long ago. Especially when they're speaking truth. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. okay. That's okay. There was yeah. an anthology that was put out not too long ago, um, Black Nuns. So, you know, basically it's an aggregation of stories of black nonbelievers in our community. And it's about 30, 35 different, you know, narratives in there. And so, guys, you may want to check it out. I believe the website is blacknuns.com. And Daryl um, was, you know, he was over that project there. So, guys, you know, definitely check that out. You have Don Barbera. He did Black But Not Baptist. He also did the 80% Solution. You have Norm Allen, who put out two absolutely wonderful anthologies. Guys, you want to check that out. You have Donald Wright. And his book, The Only Prayer I'll Ever Pray is Let My People Go. That's another book. Um, you have, let me see here. I'm looking on my bookshelf, guys, because I have all Norm Allen. Yeah, yeah, that's what I said, Norm Allen. Norm Allen and his mm-hmm. um, anthologies. I'm looking right here at The Black Atheist in America, Jason Wynn. That's on my bookshelf here. You know, trust me when I say I have a lot of books. I have a lot of books, but I don't have nearly as many as I, you know, want, you know, because I'm missing quite a few. So those that want to donate to the United Negro Kim Fund, you can do that. So <laughs> or, the Uni- or the United Negro Reina Fund, because yeah, that one, that one, that's a, that's a great, you know, my mind is a terrible thing to waste. That's no, right, okay. No, any mind, <laughs> any mind is a terrible thing to waste, but no, um, you know, and then, of course, you can look at a lot of the um, Harlem Renaissance scholars, too. You know, um, Hubert Harrison, you know, Nella Larson, you know, Zora mm-hmm. Neale oh, Hurston, one of my favorites. Nella Larson, she has a couple of free books on Amazon. We'll post those links later for you guys. So go ahead, Raina. Mm-hmm. And also, I think there's a couple of, I think she can get a couple of hers on, like, I think there, I think uh, Quicksand is on LibriVox. And mm-hmm. it might also be on the Gutenberg project. It might actually be there. I haven't checked, but I'm pretty sure that you can get it out there somewhere. Otherwise, you could just put it into um, a search engine because I think a lot of her stuff is out there for free. So excellent. And for those of you, the Gutenberg project has over forty thousand, really over forty three thousand free books for you to download, and they're trying to get it up to fifty thousand. So. There are free books. You just have to look for it. You know, we post these links 
you all, my page, you know, the Black Freethinkers page is a cacophony of information and education and materials. You just have to take your time and go through it. But we post this type of stuff all the time. You go to that page and you look through it, you will get an education. Right. Yeah. Um, can I yeah, and um, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Deborah. I just wanted to ask a question. Do y'all think bookstores are going out of style? You think a bookstore is um, a bad investment? Um, I I don't know. It really depends on your city. I mean, some place some places bookstores do better than others. It's just it really depends. It, it it will eventually. I mean, it's it, it's 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 gonna hang on by a thread, but you you probably end up having small boutique type yeah. of stores that still sell stores. Well, yeah, that's what, books and whatnot. That's, yeah, that's what I mean. It depends on what you're doing and where you are. I mean, there are some really popular book you know bookstores in you know every you know every probably every major city that are probably small, you know, intimate sort of places where people can meet and you know, have readings or whatever. You know, I mean, the big the big box bookstores maybe so. Maybe maybe that era is coming to an end. You know, right? Because you know, I'll give a shout out to a bookstore in Atlanta that I frequent every time I go down there, and I'll be there in about another month or so. But it's called Karis C H A R I S Karis Bookstore. It's a small, intimate setting. They do the readings and all of that. Me personally, I like smaller bookstores like that where you can have your readings, it's small, it's intimate. Um, some of them serve, you know, coffee, tea, you know, little, you know, snacks or what have you. But I prefer that. But I'm one of those people. I'll go to the bookstore and sit there for hours and go through books and read a little bit of them. But the thing is is that I buy the books at the end also. So don't just go there so you can chill out all day. <laughs> Yeah, and then the other thing too is, um, and then the other thing too is, is like if you're a real, if you're a real bibliophile, like, you know, there are some really good like bookstores that swap out where you can swap books, you know what I mean, and that type of stuff too. And and depending upon you know where you find yourself, those those are pretty popular. I know of a couple back, you know, back in Tennessee, and I know a couple here in Baltimore, you know, that are pretty popular for that. So. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we I mean, have a call, actually. Yes, yeah, no, you know, we have a call from 931. May oh, we ask okay. who's calling? 931? Yes. You Hello. are? Hi. Yeah, my, my name is Mark, and I'm calling from Tennessee. Hi, Mark from Tennessee. Hi, Mark. All right. Yes, uh, I have a question. Um, uh, I'm actually seeking uh, Mrs. Hutchinson's opinion on her moral combat book there on the cover, it says um, the uh, morals or values war. And I just, I have a lot of um, uh, African-American friends, and, and I'm a conservative, uh, voted, you know, up until recently, um, you know, Republican. Um, and, and when we talk about values and morals, uh, they seem to be right in line with, uh, you know, the same things that, um, you know, I, I believe in as far as a conservative goes. And, um, we just seem to be lockstep, and yet they vote uh, different um, uh, majority Democrat all the time. And and when we look at the, st- the statistics on how 
the lack of help that uh, blacks are getting in the inner cities with jobs and education and, and all the promises that are broken to them, I wonder, her, her opinion, why do they continue to stay and give such tremendous support to a party that just keeps breaking their promise to them all the time? Uh, maybe she could share her opinion with that because I know that most of my friends that I talk to are African-Americans, you know, they're, uh, they have pretty conservative values and they're uh, very religious, you know, um, when I say religious, I mean they they believe in God and, and Jesus and and those sort of things. That most of them seem to be against abortion, and uh, they they don't seem to stand for gay uh, marriage and that sort of stuff. And yet they they vote Democratic anyway. So I just wondered if she could um, help me have a little better understanding as to why they continue to stay loyal to a party that just continuously breaks their promises to them, but really goes after their vote. Could could you help me with that, Mrs. Hutchinson? Well, Dr. Hutchison isn't here, but I'll be happy to convey um, this message to her for you. But, you know, we can try to answer your question to the best of our ability. And, oh, that'd be you know, great. Excellent. And so some of what you stated there regarding, you know, basically the values that you're conveying yeah. regarding, you know, conservatism and yeah, they seem to be very, very conservative, but yet they, they don't seem to, you know, they're voting for a party that, uh, you know, supports abortion and, and those sorts of things, but they, all my friends claim to be, you know, not supporting those things. Well, again, you know, you know, again, we're not a monolith, so we have to understand. So we have a variety of different thought processes and ideologies within our community. However, yeah. um, with the Republican Party, namely what's been happening as of late with the Tea Party and, you know, just the blockage that we've been seeing, you know, in Congress, again, when we come, because I used to believe in a lot of conservative values and had a lot of conservative values friends, and the environment was not conducive, if you will, to African Americans in which we were not welcomed. We didn't feel welcomed. Um, we felt as though, you know, many of the people in that particular political party, that they were looking down on us, that they were patronizing us. Um, some were extremely yeah. condescending. And, 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 again, you know, those types of things, that has to change. But, you know, for those of us in this particular community, you know, the free thought community. It's not all of us because, again, we're not a monolith. But many of us yeah, right. do believe in rights for LGBTQ. We do believe in equal rights for um, women. We do believe Absolutely. in, you know, for a woman to be able to make a choice to, you know, whether to have a child or not. You know, we believe in all of okay. those things. Okay. Yes. Ahead. Now, now that's that's interesting, and I'm glad you brought that up because. Um, most all of uh, my African-American friends um, are uh, religious. When I say religious, they, they believe in God, and they believe uh, strongly in the Word of God, uh, meaning the Holy Bible. And when we've had some wonderful discussions about the Word of God, we've all come to agreement that um, in the Word of God, uh, there is no gray area when it comes down to aborting babies. They're a creation of God. Unless God is aborting and, uh, Unless God What's is killing them, but go Thank on. Thank you. Thank God you. doesn't exist. Unless God's, unless God's killing them, but it's, it's okay then. But go ahead. 
Well, no, uh, we all seem to came to the, came to an agreement that you know uh, there's various reasons the as to how work. a woman ends up in a, in the situations where they have to make a terrible decision, you know, on on aborting whether you know they're going to keep the child or whether they feel like having an abortion uh, is the better solution. Uh, you know, there's various reasons as to how the woman gets in that position, but when it comes down to aborting the child, it, it's a living being. And um, and we believe that they're, you know, that's a matter. That's your opinion. But um, in any case, my 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 answer to your question as to why we we don't vote Republican is black people are not single issue voters, and they're not what tends to be. We're not single issue voters. So just because we may align with you on on abortion or or gay rights or some other issue, your, the rest of your platform sucks. That's why black okay. people aren't voting Republican. Okay. Well, because those, your, because wait a second, wait a border. second, wait a second, wait a second. Okay. I'm, about, okay, I'm, I'm trying to give you the answer. The, okay, the problems with the Republican, with the Republican platform with, when it comes to economics, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to, you know, um, you know uh, social, social safety nets, is is um completely against what um what it is what our black experience tells us you know you want right. to reduce public programs you want to reduce funding for public education which is where most black people are educated in the public system right. and we right. are we are at, we are at a the rest of the um program it it just it basically undermines what we're trying to do, which is to progress, and a lot of us are trying to right. get involved in this American dream or whatever. But all of the all of the things within the Republican platform are against that when it comes to black people. Well, that's that's, and that's why we don't and, vote. And I agree, there are a lot of uh, there. You know, hey, you hit it right on the head. There, there are a lot of areas in the country to where uh, I even agree that um, they're just not getting a fair shake. You know, so I'm right there with you. On the other yeah, hand. I do also think that we can both agree that neither party really is holding up to the promises that they're making to the black, uh, you know, group. They're, they're no, and you get no, and you get no family. disagreement there. You get no disagreement there. And actually, if you read what if you read Dr. Hutchinson's book, she doesn't side with one party or the other. She she indicts the entire system because the entire exactly. system is built on white supremacy exactly. and patriarchy, and that is well, that is essentially know, what she's trying to dismantle. I think that's something that the media blows up now. I, you know, I think that the American <laughs> people as a Don't whole have, have really Blue been. Hey, hang on, as a white person. I'm I'm trying to say that I think that there's been a lot of efforts for a common white person, just me, not being a politician. Uh, you know, I don't have a problem. I served 14 years in the military with a lot of wonderful uh, Puerto Rican and black and, you know, Chinese soldiers. And well, to me, sir, it wasn't sir, a color I just want issue. you to understand that when I say that, with, with well, what I'm trying to under, help and you understand, sir, is, is that when we talk about white supremacy, we're not indicting you as a racist per se. What we're oh, saying is not. that white supremacy is a, is a system. It is a system which privileges white right. men disproportionately. So whether or not you yourself are racist or discriminatory towards people of color is, is immaterial, okay, because the well, system itself is Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that there's a possibility that um, that um, 
very real uh, issue of the white supremacist thing, which definitely was very strong in the 60s and the 70s and, and even, you know, part of the 80s. I think now that um, that issue is not as pre- prevalent as it was, say, 20 years ago, but I think that it's being kept alive and and the public's being misled because there's an agenda or a vote box that needs to be filled. And so they take a lot of... Um, uh, individuals that might not be as privy to the parties or the people that are running for office that are taking this subject. They're saying, hey, it's still alive. It's worse than it was 20 years ago. When in fact, I think that the American people themselves, the voters, um, we don't play that anymore. But the politicians well, use it as a tool to continue to draw the black voter in when it's not as bad as it used to be. I'm well, not saying I'm it doesn't exist. Here. Well, if I may okay, interject, that's, it, works, it works like that on both sides because the Republican Absolutely. Party is basically exploiting white fear. And, you know, they're putting out yeah. trigger words. This was trigger racism out there. I agree. The nationalist and militia groups have increased, especially since Obama, President Obama, has been elected. It's been absolutely horrible. You know, in the way that they've been treating him, even with the Republican Party, things that they normally would believe in. A lot of, you know, uh, a lot of his platform, some of the bills that he's brought forth were built on Republican platforms and and, and some of their thought processes. But because it came from him, they vetoed it. They voted it down. And I'm not understanding. If it was built on the premise that they put forth initially, he just added a few little nuances to it. Now they're saying no. I mean, are they schizophrenic? Well, I think that you know that that hey that's a legitimate uh, topic there, but but I think you could probably agree that even with the previous that that same game right there, why why isn't it good now when it was good before? That same game is being played with um, with every party that is in office in the White House. It seems to be mm-hmm. that you know for Republicans or Democrats, whoever's in power will come in and they'll say, hey, here's an idea that we have that we think is beneficial to the people. And it was a topic that was brought up by our counterparts before. Why isn't it good now? And then you flip flop it with the next group mm-hmm. that comes in that's of the opposite. And and so I'm saying, as an American, I think that uh, uh, white Americans and black Americans need to continue to do what we're doing on the street, which is, uh, you know, come together. And there's been a lot of that just in our neighborhoods and workplaces and in the military. A lot of the racial thing really, uh, in my world, uh, you know, living in South Carolina previously and now in Tennessee, um, I never had a, an issue, and they didn't have an issue with me. But, boy, when it comes down to the election time, man, all of a sudden they make it an issue. But in the real world, for us, it really isn't. And, and when we come down to the, the time to vote, I think that um, I wish that a lot more Amer- uh, whites and blacks would say, you know what, I'm not going to play this party thing anymore because they're playing us. I think it's time well, to start well, removing to people. these people that are playing us and start out with a fresh, a fresh platform of leaders. Would, would you disagree with that? Well, I feel that we should vote them all out, every last one of them, I and agree. take their pensions away. On both, take their parties, pensions away. both parties. Exactly. Both parties, I think. Exactly. Oh, I, I agree I with it because collusion. It's collusion. Yes. Because at the end yes, of the day, is. 
yeah, they go out and they have dinner together. But see, what's wonderful about this they phone call? They want you and I. That they want you and I to have a problem with each other. And really, look at you and I right now. We're having a wonderful dialogue and just a great conversation <laughs> right here. You, you know, you're not a white person. I'm assuming I'm not a black person. You're assuming, but look, we're talking about an issue that at one time really there was just a lot of volatility to it and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of uh, just a lot of bunk, but they want to keep that alive. But for you and I out here in the real world, you and I can work next to each other. We can have a conversation. I can accept your background and your world. You can accept mine. We both love God. You know, we, we both do. Uh, I mean, we're really not that different other than the skin, really. But the politicians well, want to no keep us at each other. They want to keep us separated. And right. we voters have to get beyond that, and we have to say, you know what? That's bunk. You're a Democrat, poli- you know, you're a politician, and you're letting me down. You're a Republican, and you're letting me down. And we need to wipe the board clean as Americans, and we need to start electing, uh, you know, uh, politicians that aren't going to keep the racism thing alive. They want to keep that alive because it's a vote getter for them, right. for and, the and, and, ones that are uneducated about the, you know, the, the politicians that are coming in. You probably researched the politicians that are running for seat or trying to uh, keep their seat. You're probably very up on that, and, and I follow quite a bit myself, but there's a lot of African Americans and a lot of whites that just really are uninformed voters, and so they just right. vote along party lines, and then they're let down. Right. And we got to get past that as a people. And that's not just important for Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's not just a matter of people keeping the race thing going. Like in, well, they in do, terms though. Of just the di- Even I, the media they do. is Don't get me that. wrong. I agree with you. I agree with you that they keep, they keep you know, race baiting and using these dog whistles when they call Obama, you know, the yeah. stamp president and all those type of things. I agree with you there. However, that is not the basic problem here. The basic problem is a system of white supremacy that doesn't just go away because we vote out certain people. It, it well, you know, I think that understanding, that understanding is not as prevalent as it used to be. But they want it not to as, be. It is not as overt as it used to be, but it is very covert well, when you look at yeah, the number of yeah. the number of in school suspensions, the number well, of blacks incarcerated, the, the the pay disparity, the disparities and in let me housing. Ask you Do you that, actually think that we're ever really going to be able to get rid of that? Because look, we we can't change the fact that there are just haters in this world, and no matter how good you and I are, not just and about no matter haters, what kind of it's example, just it's not just well, about hating. Again, you can you hate. can. It's it's not just agenda that's driven by haters. There are people who are not overtly racist who still participate in the system of white supremacy. By the well, way, institutionalized. Hey, I'm not going to disagree with that, but you can also right. say that there's a system to where blacks, a lot of black voters, are um, driven to just not trust a white person. And that's part of the system. No, that's well, white people that, that made black people not trust white people. Well, uh, look, that mistrust is not completely you know, there's, unrooted there's some in black people that reality. have been treated really bad. You know, um, in our in the older generation, they just they got kicked around and it was unjust. 
And, you know, but society and, and, and people in general have, um, you know, we think a little bit different than they did in the 60s, you know. that I mean, whites and, and, and interracial relationships and all that stuff are so much far advanced compared to before um, that, you know, anymore, um, I think that any kind of dislike between the races is, yeah, the older folks got kicked around, but but here we are with younger generations and newer generations, and we're interacting on college campuses and in the workplace, and they're not receiving the hate from their white counterparts like they would have back in the 70s and in the 60s, but yet somehow they're being, um, they're being taught that, you know what, he might be good in the workplace, but you can't trust him if he if he if you get him with his group of people. And it's just not that bad like it used to be anymore. I mean, I spent well, fourteen years right. with multiple I mean, races, and mm-hmm. when we were together, everything was copacetic, you know. Well, but, but if you again, to you know the media, that, that it's, that, it's that, not that, real. That basically that that's all of you know the different groups. In, in which there is some built-in um, distrust and, in some cases, hostility. But, again, you Don't know... Don't you think the media this, fuels a lot of this? Well, the media has played somewhat of a part, yes, because, but, again, yeah. you know, we have two different experiences. And you've never, I can't say you've never, but I don't believe that you have experienced institutionalized racism, you know, on the same level that maybe I, me personally, that I have. Oh, no, I've not. I've not faced that. I've witnessed it. My sister is uh, is a black uh, girl. My dad's white. Uh, Mom's black, uh, you know, uh, lives up there in Minneapolis, Golden Valley up there. And and so I've seen some of the things that my young sister's gone through, you know, and, and, you know, it isn't right. It's it doesn't happen often, but once in a while you run into a fool that will treat her bad. But I got to tell you, in my heart, I believe at this point in in America, I think that there's big money, uh, and there's a lot of uh, fuel given towards the big money and the agenda uh, by the media and by the politicians. They want to keep us apart. They want to keep us hanging on to racism. They want to keep us hanging on to the things of the past that kept us down and kept us separated. And, you know, there's got to come a time where we all wise up and we come together and say, hey, you know what, there is a little bit of racism that goes on around here, and it's never going to go away. There's always going to be a – There's a, hey, we're never going to have it perfect. But people like you well, and no I Well, no one is talking about being perfect, and, but – but but part of wising up is to recognize the system of of racism, white supremacy. And I think we're running low on time, but I just wanted to say, sir, you should pick up Godless Americana and Moral Combat. You I do really want to read it. It looks them. very interesting. It looks it's interesting. It's very good. I, I got to tell you something. You've been a joy to talk to because I really thought when I called in that I was going to be um, bombarded with, with your opinion and not be allowed to share my thoughts. And, and so I just want to say thank you very much for uh, having this dialogue with me uh, and, uh, and allowing me to share you know my thoughts on this. And you're right. If there's any kind of uh, racism that I see, I don't put up with that as an American, uh, as a, a former soldier. And I also am an evangelist that preach the Word of God. And in the Word of God, there is no room for racism. We're, we're to love one another. Christ Jesus loved everyone, and he's our example, and that's what we're supposed to mimic, and that's the code we're to live by, is to love one another regardless of our color, and we're supposed to stand up for each other. Mm -hmm. Well, we appreciate you calling in today, and 
you know, again, thank you. I'm glad we were able to have, you know, a wonderful dialogue here, you know, and again, we, we found some things that we have in common. So, again, we wish yes. you well, and may science and reason guide your way. Take care. Well, I just hope <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh my god. You cut that mic so quick. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, no, he he was great. You know what I mean? He was great. And, you know, I appreciate him calling in. He was wonderful. And I'm glad that you know we were He able was to wonderful. Well, <laughs> You know me. You know I'm willing to talk to anybody and everyone, regardless of the ideology and, you know, um, their thought processes. Because, again, I, I feel that most of us, we have more in common than not. And so, you know, and I appreciate that he even mustered up the courage to call the show because, you know, we are a show of free thinkers, atheists, non-believers, um, what have you. And he was a believer. And, you know, I plead out to the, you know, the religious community often, and the fact that they called in, and while we may not agree, you see that you're not going to be attacked on this show, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I Especially appreciate when you don't come with the foolishness. I mean, he was he was honest, and, you yeah. know, he, you know, he, he wasn't, was he wasn't, he wasn't in coming with some foolishness. He, he right. you know, he was, he was a reasonable person. He was trying to understand some things, so. And so for that, we applaud you, Mark. We definitely applaud you, you know, just your character, you know, for your coming Mm -hmm. on the show. And, yeah, definitely. So on that note, we're going to close it out next Sunday. Gee, you will be in a place, so we'll have Graydon Square. We'll have Langston Tombstone. We'll land in Tombstone, and we'll have Seagats on the show as well. So it should be a wonderful show. The night before, Saturday the 27th, we're going to have a show on sexuality. It's going to be a mature show, so I'm going to put the the little security precautions on there. So, you know, if, if you're a young person, you won't be able to get into the show. I'm going to make sure of that. So we'll please listen in. And on that note, we are out of here. We'd like to thank Dr. Hutchinson for her wonderful interview. Again, com. You can purchase Moral Combat on Amazon. Um, Godless Americana definitely hit the stores first, first week of May. And I'm telling you guys, you must read this book is phenomenal. On that note, guys, you all take care and you all have a wonderful Sunday evening.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.